Welcome to the Riding Unicorns podcast. This is the podcast all about growth startups. I'm James Pringle. I'm a technology founder, investor, and VC at Portfolio Ventures. My co-host is Hector Mason. Hector is a partner at B2B Investor Episode 1 Ventures. This podcast is all about uncovering what it takes to build a unicorn business. We speak to some of the best founders and investors, many from unicorn companies, and ask them about their journey, operational insight, tips, lessons, stories, and anything that can help uncover what it takes to build a high-growth business. Today's episode is with Matt Cooper, co-CEO at Crowdcube. Matt has recently taken the role, having previously been the chief commercial officer. In this episode, we cover the evolution of crowdfunding, the democratization of private market investing, what really drives Matt, work-life balance, healthy habits, and much more. So let's get started. Hi, Matt. Welcome to the Riding Unicorns podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Hector. Hey, James. How are you doing? Very good. Very good. Matt, you have a new role at Crowdcube as co-CEO. Maybe we could start with just covering that and explaining what's new. Yeah, what's new? New year, new start, new role. All very exciting. But it's been something that's been in the works for quite some time. I joined the business and joined Darren and Luke on their journey nearly a decade ago, so over eight years ago. And joined at exactly the same time, actually, as my co-CEO, Bill. And when we joined the business, it was pretty small. We hadn't really kind of hit our straps at that point. And awareness and acceptance of crowdfunding and what we did and how we did it was really, really low. Fast forward to now, and, you know, Darren's been at the helm for 13 years, which is a really long time by any measure. The business is vastly different to when him and Luke started it, obviously. You know, we're 160 plus people operating across multiple countries. We're regulated in both the EU and the UK. And Darren really loved the starting of companies and the early part of that entrepreneurial journey. And that isn't the business that we are today. So the three of us and the board works on a succession plan over the course of last year. And Bill and I have worked relatively successfully, we think, together in scaling the business for the last eight years. And it felt like the natural progression to take the reins and carry on all of the good work that Darren had done. Yeah, it's been fantastic seeing the journey. I mean, I spent a month in the Crowdcube Exeter office because I was at Exeter Uni and basically knocked on the door and asked if I could come like work as an intern, which is, seems to be how I get all my jobs. It was such a fantastic experience. I think it kind of you know, gave me my love for startups and investing. I've been cheering from the sidelines for the last 10 years or almost 10 years. It's been great seeing how it's evolved and how actually acceptance has increased i think of crowdfunding i want to talk more about that a little bit later on but can you talk a bit about why you joined crowdcube crowdfunding was a new thing and had very little acceptance very little awareness so what drew you to it i think it was a few things there was darren's kind of magnetism and just general disregard for the established investment ecosystem and kind of incumbent ecosystem that went around the idea of investing in companies and or in raising capital for companies as a founder. My background was City of London, so investment banks like Merrill Lynch, and then into a succession of building companies for other people. So I had both a finance background from my early career and also building early stage companies or small companies in lots of different sector verticals, but doing it for other people. And one thing I had from my early career on the, in the city was a little bit of a chip on my shoulder about everything that I wasn't in the circles that I was keeping. So I didn't go to a top tier university. My parents were wealthy. I didn't go to a private school. 
And in the city of London at the time, it was predominantly dominated by people that came from that socioeconomic background. I had no way of investing in private companies. I had no clue about investing in private companies. I didn't really understand angel investing. And indeed the idea of then subsequently going and starting a company and looking to raise capital for it was alien to me as well. I just didn't have the friends and family that people lean on in order to capitalize a business in the early days. So I think a lot of what attracted me was this sort of slightly antagonistic part of me that wanted to prove that people that came from my background that didn't necessarily have everything laid out in front of them at the early stage of their career could both invest in companies and raise capital for companies. Plus I needed a job quite honestly, when I met with, met, with, met with Darren. So that was always good. I was a little bit unsure about the Exeter connection. I hopped on a train and went down to see him and then realized that was quite a long way to commute. So we had to figure out how I might be able to work in London and, and not Exeter, but it all worked out in the end. I think it's, it's the sort of chip on people's shoulder. We can dive into that a little bit more, but I think it's a really common thread in startups. I think innovators have something to prove and that comes from somewhere. How instrumental do you think that is to giving you your drive and in helping you and Crowdcube achieve what you have achieved? I think it was possibly more important in the early days. So I think it's important when everyone is shutting the door in your face and says no to you. I think it's important when you feel like a rank outsider as a business, not as an individual where you're trying to break into something that's been established and dominated by these kind of big corporate titans, whether it's investing or advisory work or legal or financial. So I think in the early days, that chip on the shoulder is gets you through the door. It equates to not accepting no from people. And we definitely needed that in the early days. I think it's less important when you become more established. It's then more about being as a leader, empathetic, vulnerable at times, and having the ability to assemble a really good team around you. So I've probably mellowed a little bit in my old age. I think becoming a parent helps massively with that as well. I think parents, fathers, mothers make better leaders of people. I think you learn a lot as a parent, which you can then apply to building a business. Most people will be aware of Crowdcube who are listening and crowdfunding more generally. You mentioned that it's not a new business, been around for a while. Where are we in the cycle with crowdfunding broadly? Where can it go? What are the big next innovations in that space? Before we hear Matt's answer, a quick request from me. 42% of our listeners are subscribed to Riding Unicorns on Spotify or Apple. Our goal this year is to keep increasing that number. So if you've listened to this podcast a few times or enjoying this episode, please subscribe and help us get that number up. Thanks. Yeah, I think... Certainly within your audience, I'd expect there to be a reasonable understanding of what we do and how we do it and crowdfunding more generally. But if you expand out to the rest of UK and broadly speaking, retail investors and companies across the UK and Europe, awareness is still relatively low. So we have this education job on our hands, particularly in Europe, that are what those markets are four or five years behind the UK due to delays in regulation in terms of their adoption and acceptance of crowdfunding. But where do we think the business is going or where do we think crowdfunding is going more generally? I think what we know is that retail participation in private company investing and investing in different asset classes is not going away. It's actually growing. If you look at our numbers from last year, in terms of number of investments made, number of investors registered on the platform, we were roughly 30% up year on year. That was after a record year in 2021. And it's interesting when we used to go out and raise money for the business, a lot of the pushback from investors, when you used to get the door slammed in your face was, 
you guys are doing fine in a bull market, but in a downturn, you're toast. No one will invest and nobody will raise capital. And actually what we found through multiple macroeconomic shocks is that's not the case. It's fundamentally not the case. We grew the business through Brexit. We grew the business through the pandemic. We grew the business through arguably the biggest macroeconomic shock the last 10 years in, in 2022. And still people want to invest and still companies want to raise capital. And that retail participation in stock ownership is changing in the public markets. So the regulators across the UK and Europe are mandating for retail participation in IPOs and listings. They are promoting fair treatment of retail investors, and that's not going to go away. And big established players looking for providers of liquidity solutions, whether that's primary, secondary, SPV, Crowdcube nominee, it's all kind of converging. So we don't think retail demand is disappearing. In fact, our data shows that it's going up and we don't think company acceptance and adoption is disappearing. In fact, our data says it's going up. So we feel relatively confident where we are at the moment. It's great when companies can turn a perceived headwind into a tailwind. And I think what you've tapped into there is actually in a time where maybe there's less institutional capital around, it's never more important for sort of retail capital to make its way into businesses. So that's great to hear. And it's great that you've now got numerous data points around that, which is cool. And James, I mean, we've talked about this a lot on the show and it's something we're both passionate about. In fact, all three of us are definitely passionate about this. It's democratization of private markets. It's opening up access to one of the best performing asset classes that there is, which has traditionally been inaccessible to the people who actually can benefit from great returns the most. There's a strange irony there. And there's been like this super long education piece, certainly with crowdfunding, like private market participation more generally. I mean, AngelList and things in the US were way advanced and we're only just seeing things like Odin and Voban kind of crop up and those sort of infrastructure players opening up the space. I wonder whether that whole journey could have been made quicker. If you look back over the last 10 years, what could have happened to have made this journey of awareness faster? Like how could we be where we are today, but a few years back? That's a really good question. I think the first thing I say, we probably could have been better at our jobs at Crowdcube at least. So there is definitely times where we've made the wrong decisions on things and we've gone down the wrong path at times. So I think we could have arguably grown the business a little bit quicker than we have. And that's being really self-reflective, but uh, you know, I think any company or any founder or any CEO is likely to be able to point to things where they went off down the wrong path at some point. And maybe if they hadn't done that, the business would have grown quicker. I think we were so central to growing awareness and adoption of crowdfunding that if our business had been bigger, so awareness and adoption would have been, I think the kind of Democratized access is sort of an overused term. I think some of the market participants and the infrastructure players that you talked about are starting on the journey of democratized access, but actually they're mainly reserved for sophisticated investors and high net worths, which is kind of not democratized. True retail is democratized, and that's a lot of what we do. But I think we could have built the business slightly quicker. The regulator actually was super supportive in the UK, but the regulator in the EU could have moved faster, but we had this big thing called Brexit, which kind of chucked a bit of a spanner in the works. The regulators in the US were awful, but could have been a lot quicker. The Jobs Act, which sort of normalized crowdfunding in the US, took an awful lot of time for the Obama administration to 
get through Congress and the Senate and that type of thing. And it was hugely complex. And I think the fact that we drove it from here, Darren started equity crowdfunding. We're the largest equity crowdfunding platform on earth. And part of that is because we've got a supportive regulator. I think if we'd had a good supportive regulator who understood private market investing in the US and adoption in the US had been far faster than it had in the UK and Europe, I think that would have been a rising tide and everybody would have benefited as a result of it. So there's, I think, a few things that we could have done and a few things that the regulators could have done to have made this all go a bit quicker. I think your point is right about Vauban and Odin. By the way, for listeners, Vauban and Odin build the infrastructure to allow people to invest as syndicates in companies. And it feels like those two, just to you know, cherry pick those two, have sort of been built from the inside. Like I think they very quickly focused on getting insiders involved. So VCs investing in the company, VCs running syndicates on the platform. And I think Crowdcube is very much taking like an outsider approach. You know, you've talked about it coming in, you're the David to the incumbents Goliath. And have you ever felt that Crowdcube has been blocked out by insiders and that there was resistance from the inside to crowdfunding existing? In all honesty, I don't think so. If I look back on kind of pivotal moments in the business's history, yeah, a lot of them have been linked to institutional investors or growth stage founders, like taking a chance on us. Think back to kind of 2015, when we did our first sort of legitimate series A round for Anthony and the team at Just Park, which was led by Index Ventures and one of the godfathers of UK venture capital, Robin Klein. And that institutional stamp of validation and that adoption by a quality company in an index portfolio really was an inflection point for us that everybody within their peer group said, okay, we need to look at this now more seriously because Robin's kind of given his stamp of approval to it. And Robin's remained a, a big supporter of us since then, quite frankly. But also you get the businesses that are a little bit later stage and the investors that are investing at a slightly later stage looking at what just happened and saying, okay, we need to get ourselves educated about this as well. So I would get asked this a lot, like a you friend or foe to institutional investors. And I think in the UK now, absolutely friend, you know, a lot of what we do, 95 plus percent is either institutionally led or led by a syndicate of angels or professional investors. I think in Europe, we're starting from a much lower base in terms of education. So we've got a job on our hands. You know, our team in France, for instance, spend a lot of time educating the incumbent investment landscape there as to why we're not the enemy and actually why it can be really additive to your portfolio company. I'd completely agree with that in relation to Hector's original question in the sense of those later stage private market investments, like I'm a micro shareholder in Plum and Moneybox from Crowdcube. And I think those add a huge amount of credibility to the overall platform and ecosystem. And they are being led by institutions, majority of those rounds. And I think in the early days, it was maybe perceived, maybe wrongly perceived as companies that couldn't raise from institutional investors going to retail investors. Whereas now there is so much to be praised about the impact that crowdfunding can have on your metrics, your community, your retention, all these things, as well as drawing more capital into the business. But you know, the companies I listed just there, they don't need retail investment, they could get more institutions to put more money in. But the value is from activating your own community 
and the Crowdcube community into coming in and being ambassadors and supporters of the business. And I think from a commercial standpoint, maybe Crowdcube probably thought maybe it would have been good if we'd done more of those earlier as well, because I'm sure those are probably the most lucrative deals when you're raising three to five million for a free trade or whatever in 24 hours. My answer would probably be that stuff earlier, but I appreciate that it's taken a lot of time. There's been lots of changes in regulations and things like that. James, have you, have you had companies where you've been a prior investor that have raised on Crowdcube or crowdfunding? And I wonder, I mean, I'd be interested to hear like what you've heard from founders are the benefits. And then Matt, it'd be great to hear like what you guys pitch to founders as being the benefit and how you measure it as well. Yeah, so we've got a couple of companies. So I was a partner at Love Ventures. We did deals into Circa 5000 and Coconut. They've both raised on crowdfunding. I think they're both Crowdcube, actually. And I know from speaking to Tom and Matt at Circa 5000, they had a huge benefit from activating community. They're an impact investment business. So they've got a really strong message about where you should put your assets to drive change in the world. And that works really well. I also know from Sam at Coconut that he's taken a little bit longer to find his product market fit. And sometimes you can spend a lot of time sort of dealing with the community and managing that investor base. But I would say they would both reflect that it's been a net positive for sure. Yeah. And Matt, how do you pitch that benefit to founders and what do you see? I think the pitch has evolved over time and... It's interesting when you work through bull and bear cycles, the use case for us for a later stage business at the high at the bull market, 2020, 2021, when capital was free or exceptionally cheap and plentiful for them was slightly different to what it is now. At the moment, we've got high quality series B, series C, series D companies who are looking at how they put more cash on the balance sheet to weather the various waves which are crashing in or have been crashing in over last year and into this year. And actually the smart way to do that, if you've got a really large customer base, is to look at, well, wouldn't it be neat if I could get 15,000 people investing an average of 600 pounds? And actually that's rather more palatable than going out to market and trying to roadshow the business right now as a growth stage company. So we're doing a lot of that. And the use case for that didn't really exist in 2021, but it definitely existed last year and this year. So I think we've got this kind of, band of progressive businesses, often highly correlated to B Corps, actually. We're by far and away the largest funder of B Corps in the UK now. And I think B Corps are predisposed to think about their ownership structure potentially before they become a public company. And by having thousands of users, customers, stakeholders as shareholders in the business from an early stage sets them up to be a better business and a better corporate citizen and a better B Corp as they grow. I think that's a great point. Often here, we're talking about mainly consumer-facing companies. Hector's obviously B2B investor mainly. We do a lot of B2B as well, but Hector, you guys are B2B only. So how can we get all these benefits into the B2B vertical? And what are Crowdcube doing about that? Listen, in the super early days, it used to be beer and crisps and, uh, and, and you know very obvious consumer plays. Can I touch it, feel it, drink it, eat it? That has changed over time, but it's been a relatively slow journey. But if you look at the last couple of years, the fastest growing sector verticals for us have been B2B and clean tech and green energy for slightly different reasons, I think. The B2B technology side, I think as awareness of crowdfunding as a way to access private companies as an asset class has grown, 
So it's attracted a different type and more sophisticated type of investor. We've seen that in our kind of investor onboarding numbers. We're way north of sort of 1.3, 1.4 million registered investors. You know, we onboarded more investors last year than Hargreaves Lansdowne, Interactive Investor, St. James's Place, so on and so forth in the UK. And these aren't all kind of unsophisticated early 20-something people. A lot of these individuals have a sophisticated attitude to risk and diversification across their various different investments. And if we can present a B2B technology company led by a reputable and good investor and offer retail investors or Crowdcube investors the chance to participate in that round at the same economic terms whilst still benefiting from tax relief, that's becoming more and more attractive. You know, if you look at the changes that were happened in the budget last year, two point something million people have been pulled into a higher rate tax bracket. Now that's two point something million people in the UK that weren't necessarily educated about the benefit of EIS tax relief, but now are getting educated about the benefit of EIS tax relief because they're paying more tax. So we think that kind of sophisticated portion of the retail investor landscape in the UK is becoming more inquisitive about alternative asset classes and tax relief, and that is of benefit to us. So we're relatively bullish actually about the prospects for more B2B technology companies that don't have that obvious consumer fit using this as a way to top up rounds they were doing anyway and get all of that kind of benefit of a diversified shareholding base through crowdfunding. Yeah, I'm bullish as well. I think in a strange way, 2021 was an amazing time for all of this stuff. I mean, obviously it was overhyped. Things crashed a little bit and some people lost some money. But I think like the genie's out of the box in terms of the level of awareness now around private market investing and actually just investing. Is there is there a world in which Crowdcube does a B2B or even B2C, a portfolio product where the crowd can invest in a basket of companies that are selected by someone with some level of skill that maybe is higher than the investor themselves? Yeah, it's a really good question. We've been asked that a lot over the, the years. We, years ago, we tried to, to launch an EIS fund, which would invest in a portfolio of EIS stocks across the platform. It, failed basically. And what we realized when we did the retro on that was that when we really spoke to consumers, spoke to retail investors on mass, the reason that they engage with Crowdcube and that they engage with crowdfunding is that they want a sense of a direct relationship with the underlying investor. So I invested in GoHenry because I could see myself using that for my children and I subsequently do. I invested in nothing technology because I think that the incumbent smartphone market needs to be disrupted. But I feel like I have some form of emotional connection to the underlying asset or underlying company or brand. The kind of concept falls apart a little bit. We think there's better ways of, of offering that type of investment opportunity to investors in the UK. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, it's not too much of a stretch to say that what we're talking about here is that retail investors on Crowdcube like to feel an emotional connection with the company there investing in. Without having thought deeply about this, I wonder whether having an emotional connection with a company is at odds with getting a good financial return. So James, I mean, when we as VCs invest, we try to remove the emotion from it, right? Because it's a bias that can get in the way of making good decisions. And so I wonder whether you feel investing as a result of an emotional connection is a good or a bad idea. And how, how do you protect people against that and make them aware of the risks? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're operating on the assumption that people are only making an investment decision based only on an emotional connection. And what we know is that isn't the case. Crowdfunding investors tend to invest with a combination of head and heart. Now, head will be based on some of the decision-making process that you go through as professional investors, but there will still be a heart element if you're a user of the product or service that you perhaps won't have as professional investors or don't require as professional investors because you want to remove any bias out of it. We think that's okay to have a combination of head and heart involved when you're making an investment. If we're presenting fair, clear, and not misleading information, and we're presenting a round that's led by professional investors, and we're extending the same terms to the crowd, why shouldn't there be an emotional connection attached to it? That's super interesting. I think that it makes a lot of sense. There are plenty of companies on Crowdcube that someone would have an emotional connection to, and then all they have to do is find a subset that they also think make great investment. I mean, James, what, what, what's your approach to this? I think any investor has a conscious or unconscious bias based on their own experiences. And this is why things like sometimes, you know, golf tech gets funded because the, the investors are passionate about golf, despite there being, you know, very few golf tech unicorns out there. Someone else will prefer this deal over here because they have seen something in the market or they've experienced something that means that that is more sort of relevant or grabs their attention faster. Obviously, our job is to get a return, not just invest in stuff that we think is cool because we're not investing our own money. So it's slightly different for a retail investor. You are investing your own money. And I think all investments come down to the goal of your investment. It makes total sense. I mean, Matt, what is it that drives you now? And why have you had to go on that sort of journey over the last however many years to get to the point where you are that sort of leader and where you feel you are ready to be CEO? I think what was a couple of parts of that question, isn't there? I think what drives me is, I think what we've built is an important and meaningful and long-lasting part of the financial services landscape, not just in the UK, but across the world. Like I never would have imagined, you know, eight plus years ago, sitting here today with crowdfunding being a multi-billion dollar industry across the US, APAC, Europe, and the UK. You know, pretty much every developed economy on earth now has crowdfunding in some way, shape, or form. So I think what drives me is that we do important work for lots of different reasons. And I think it's what attracts the team or people to want to come and work here is that we're a meaningful part of the financial services landscape now. Like what we do matters. And it's immensely empowering to walk into a room when you know more about your subject matter than anybody else on earth. You certainly know more about your subject matter than the person you're talking to in that meeting or on stage at that event or on a podcast. And you can't say that in many other industries because there aren't many other industries in which you invented it. So that is immensely empowering, something I'm immensely proud of. I think it attracts good people to our business and it allows us to kind of continue on this journey of building a big you know, meaningful global company. In terms of how I've evolved as a human being and as a leader, I do think I've maybe lost some of that chip on my shoulder that I had in, in the early days. And I've probably mellowed as a result of becoming a parent and also spending 20 years of my life living with a yoga teacher, which tends to help with your mindfulness. I think I've got a much greater understanding of the importance of looking after the you in order to be able to look after others within the business. So things like your mental health and your kind of fitness and how you deal with pressure, 
you need to work out as you take on more responsibility, how to process that, how to absorb it and how to deal with it and still function without passing all of that pressure on to those that work for you. And I'm still learning all of that stuff and still developing how to do that and what the right way to do it is. But I think that's exceptionally important as you start scaling a business. Like you can't just pass that pressure down the chain that you have to deal with when you run a company. Matt, we always like to ask our guests who they would invite to a dinner. They can be dead or alive. So having talked about everything crowdfunding, everything becoming a CEO, um, how to manage your self and keep yourself happy and operating at the level you need to be at. But who are your guests? I'm going to go with two live, one dead, just to mix it up a little bit. So first up, I'm going to get Ernest Shackleton. So I'm mildly obsessed with the kind of golden age of Arctic exploration, the story of endurance and everything that he went through in the face of great adversity. Second, I've just finished a book, which I encourage everybody to read, which I absolutely loved, which I think has now just become a Netflix series called Butterfly. And it's uh, Yusra Mardili. She fled Syria as a refugee and then started on a journey via Germany to go and swim at the Olympics. And I found that story and her more generally incredibly inspirational. And then lastly, I'm a huge cricket fan, huge sport fan more generally. I'd like Ben Stokes to come and have dinner with me just based on the fact that I think he's been involved in some absolutely iconic kind of moments of drama, an individual with lots of complexity, which I kind of like. I think that would be super interesting. 100%. Thank you so much for coming on and telling us your riding unicorn story. There's so much to pick over there for founders and early stage employees. And it's really exciting to see the impact that Crowdcube and crowdfunding more broadly is having on the ecosystem. So long may that continue. Thanks, guys. It's been really great to talk. Thank you. Over and out. Thanks, Matt. That's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. To stay up to date with the latest episodes, please follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We also have a newsletter called Reading Unicorns, which is another great way to get every episode direct to your inbox. Please tell your friends about it and engage with us on social media. And we'll see you on the next episode.